Today, as in the ancient era, the church is confronted by a host of life stories that contradict and compete with the gospel. The book of Colossians demonstrates the supremacy of Christ in all of life and reminds us that he has secured redemption for creation of which his people are a part. You're listening to a sermon series on the book of Colossians by Pastor Stacy Potts. The following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Paul says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Dear Lord, we come to you now after just a sweet time of worship this morning. And we are reminded, Lord, that so it's so easy for us to place our trust and hope and riches. Not just money, Lord, but the, the blessings you give us when things are going well, when when everything is sunshine and flowers, it's so easy to trust you. It's so easy to love you and serve you. But when you send us clouds, when life isn't as easy, you are no less good. And so this morning, Lord, we just stop right up front here. Before we even come into your word, we just stop and we thank you for your goodness. And we desperately seek your forgiveness for basing our trust in you on our circumstances. Because you're always loving to us. The greatest trial we could have ever faced, the greatest problem in life that we could ever have endured was our sin against you and your wrath towards us. And you overcame that by sending Jesus to die for us. By pouring out your wrath on him, making him the scapegoat so that we could be forgiven. Certainly, if you can overcome that, there are no trials in this life that are great, greater than that. It's too great for you to help us through. And so, Lord, I pray that our faith in you, our trust in you, our worship of you, our love for you would not be based on circumstances, would not be based on feelings and emotions. Rather, Lord, it would be based on your goodness, your character, your truth as you have revealed to us in your word. And Lord, it's that word this morning that we are privileged to study. It is your word this morning, Lord, that I am privileged to be able to preach. And so, Lord, take my, my frail words here and empower them through your spirit to speak to each and every heart. Lord, we desperately need you to be among us, for you to take your truth and drive it deep into our souls convict us and to change us. We may be saved, we may be forgiven, but Lord, the process of sanctification is still going on. And so Lord, here at Cornerstone, will you just take your word and do a work in the hearts of your people? That's what our desire is. 
Help us this morning, Lord, as we study. Help us as we seek to understand. And help us as we seek to be like you in Jesus' name. Amen. Whenever you read a book that was written in a different culture or perhaps in a different time period than our own, inevitably some of those differences stand out. For example, I just recently finished a book called The Trellis and the Vine. It's written by two guys, uh, Colin Marshall and Tony Payne. These men are Australian pastors, and so their book is written from the standpoint and viewpoint of Australian culture. And I was about 50 pages into the book, and I had forgotten that fact. I had forgotten who they were and where they were from when I read the following sentence. It said, quote, Michael meets one-to-one every fortnight over breakfast with his mate Steve, who is a newish Christian. And just for a moment, I stopped and I went, his mate Steve? And thought about it and like, oh wait, that's right, they're Australian, okay, I'm back on track, I understand what they're saying. Um, The culture difference there threw me off for a moment. I had another example of this recently. I also read a book called The Gospel of the Kingdom by George Eldon Ladd. It was written in 1959, so think 50s, late 50s. This is post-Korea, mid-Cold War, and so the book has that kind of a flair to it. He talks about communism and the possibility of a nuclear war, etc., etc., but those weren't the parts that really stood out to me. The part that stood out to me the most is when he was talking about uh, buying a house and the need for earnest money. And on page 76, he said this, quote, If you decide to buy a house, you search until you find the house you want. Perhaps, perhaps it costs $20,000. The price is a bit high, but it is the house for which you have been looking. How many of you would like to find the house you want for $20,000? Yeah, I think all of us would. So obviously that stood out to me as well. Some of these cultural or time differences can be humorous, but more often than not, I find them to be very helpful in understanding the differences between cultures, the differences between time periods in which things are written. An illustration of that would be another book, one I'm actually reading right now. It's called uh, Total Church by Tim Chester and Steve Timmis. Chester and Timmis are British pastors. So their illustrations are British. They're writing about British issues using British language to some extent throughout the book. And in chapter 4, they're talking about social involvement and how the church should understand social involvement, how it should deal with problems perhaps in society that are going on. And one of the things that stood out to me there was how they're describing that in Britain, in the British church, the main problem that they face is not racism. If you were here last week, you know why I'm saying that. It's not racism that they face in Britain, in the British church. It's class distinction. Here's what they say, quote, The British social system is elitist compared to that of other countries. The upper classes have an inherent confidence in social situations. The lower classes have an inherent inferiority. This class consciousness runs deep in British evangelicalism. Social class is British evangelicalism's equivalent of racism in American evangelicalism. Now, just to help you understand that, make sure you know what that means, for them, how many of you have watched like Pride and Prejudice or one of those movies? Or, okay, you know you have the upper classes, the, the nobles, the lords, the people who are wealthy, and then you have the servants and the farmers and the people who are not, and the two don't mix. Okay, For the British, their issue is getting people who are more well-off, who are more socially superior, quote-unquote, the higher class, to interact with people of the lower class, and vice versa, getting the people who are in that lower class of society to interact with the upper class. They don't really deal with racial tensions, at least that's how they describe themselves. In America, or just 
I'll just keep it this way. Here at Cornerstone, we've never really struggled with class distinction. We've had people who were fairly wealthy, and we've had people who were fairly poor all come together, love one another, be friends, et cetera, et cetera. For us, that's just not something that we see, but this is what they're dealing with. Now, hearing them explain the problems that they face in their culture with class distinctions, I think is a helpful example or tool in understanding what Paul is saying here in Colossians 3 about the slave-master relationship. As I attempted to explain to you last week, the form of slavery that you read about here in Colossians 3 is not racially based slavery. Let me repeat that one more time. This is not racially based slavery. It's not the same kind of slavery that we experienced here in American history. American slavery was clearly a racially based system, but for first century Mediterranean people, the form of slavery that they were more familiar with was what would be what we would call class slavery or social slash economic slavery. Okay, It's based on those features. And so as we read these words, we have to remember that we are reading instructions that are given in the context of a culture that none of us are familiar with. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around that, and so that's part of the reason why when we read these words, they seem so out of place to us. Because in our experience of slavery, slavery is just considered to be an inherent evil. And yet as you look at the scriptures and you ask the question, well, does the Bible say that slavery as an institution, as a social construct, does the Bible say that slavery is wrong? The honest answer is no. If, though, I turn around and ask it from the other side, does the Bible then say that slavery is right? Slavery as an institution, slavery as a social construct? Again, the answer is no. Surprisingly, God doesn't really address the inherent morality of the institution of slavery. Instead, he regulates it, so to speak, by placing demands on all parties, slaves and masters, that, historically speaking, have brought about the demise of slavery everywhere that the gospel has flourished. Did you hear that? It's brought about the demise of slavery everywhere that the gospel has flourished. It's a brilliant plan. And so here we are today, about to study the responsibilities of slaves and masters, having never experienced what that relationship is like in the first place, by God's grace. And yet, as we're going to see at the end, that doesn't mean that these verses are worthless for us. Because I fear that as you've been looking at them and thinking about them in advance, you're going, well, how does this apply? Okay, husband, wife, I get. Parent, child, I get. Slave, master, I don't see any real relevance for us. Are these just things that we say, okay, that's just for the past. It's just something that happened a long time ago. You can skip this now. We'll get on into chapter 4, verse 2 here. No, these verses are still critical to us. Because even though the culture was different in which they were given... Strangely enough, it's the cultural setting that makes them still applicable to us today. Now, before we move into the text, let me address one more thing that I think is critical that might have come up in your mind as you've been reading through this week after week after week. It's a question. Why, out of all of these relationships, husband, wife, parent, child, slave, master, does he spend so much time on the slave-master relationship, particularly the slave's responsibilities? I mean, everybody else gets how many verses of instruction? One. Husbands do this. Wives do this. Children do this. Parents do this. Masters do this. 
Slaves, though, get four verses worth of instruction. Is Paul just being overly uh, overbearing, excuse me, or is he being mean to the slaves? Or is there a possible reason why he's giving them extra instructions? Well, the answer, of course, is the latter. To understand why Paul is giving them so many instructions here in Colossians, you need to remember and understand the relationship of Colossians to which other book in your New Testament. Do you remember what I said the other week? It's Philemon. These two books go together. In Philemon, Paul is writing to a Christian slave owner who lives in the city of Colossae about a runaway slave of his named Onesimus. As I mentioned, Onesimus, after running away, who does he run into? The Apostle Paul. He gets saved, and now he's coming back. And so as he's coming back, he's realizing that there's a truth about this situation. Under Roman law, Philemon has the right to do pretty much anything he wants to, Onesimus. But that's Roman law. God's law is slightly different. And so for the people in the Colossian church, they're not just getting one letter from Paul, they're actually getting two. One is written to all of them collectively. That's the letter we're studying right now, the letter of Colossians. The other one, though, is written just to Philemon, but spoken to everybody. It's an open letter to him. And if you look down in Colossians chapter 4 for just a moment, look and notice who's bringing the letter uh, to the Colossians back to the church. Who's one of the people? It's Onesimus. He's one of the, the mailmen. He's one of the delivery guys. And so that means that as this letter is being read, as, as Aristarchus, the pastor there, is standing up probably to read these letters, you see Philemon sitting in the crowd, and probably very near him is his runaway slave, recently returned, Onesimus. So obviously in the Colossian church, there's a buzz about this. This is, a, this is a major situation about this slave master thing. Look what's happened with Philemon and Onesimus. And so in Colossians, Paul addresses the slaves in greater detail than he does the masters. Yet in Philemon, he addresses the masters via his comments to Philemon in great detail on how to model themselves as Christian masters. Taken together then, Colossians and Philemon... It creates a beautiful picture of how the gospel was coming in to change the culture of the day. And what we're going to see in Colossians and what you read in Philemon is nothing short of a radical paradigm shift in understanding slavery, how the gospel has impacted it. So, let's take a few moments to work through the text and see what Paul is telling these two groups of people. We'll start where Paul starts, with the slaves. We want to look at four specific aspects of instructions that he gives to the slaves here in Colossae. Number one, let's look at the command. In verse 22, Paul says, Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Now, as I told you before, the command here in verse 22 is identical to the command given to children in verse 20. It's the word obey. And obey means exactly what you think obey means. It means to do what you're told. To follow the command or the orders of another. And so, also similar to the children, notice that the scope of obedience covers every area of life. They are to obey in everything. So whatever the master tells them to do in any area of life, they are to do it. Now, I think the main question that comes up in our mind when we notice that is, is Paul treating the slaves like kids? Like children? Because if, I, if I'm talking with you and you say to me, hey look, don't talk to me like I'm a kid... You understand that means that I'm belittling you. I'm demeaning you. 
We, we don't like to be talked to as if we're children. And so Paul seems to be doing that here. Is he trying to insult them? No, that's not the, the intent at all. All Paul is doing here with this verse is he is recognizing that the slaves are underneath their master's authority. That's it. Within the realm of this relationship, the master is the one in authority. The slave is the one under authority. It's the same with parents and children. Parents are the ones placed by God in authority in that relationship. Children are under their authority. He's not trying to demean the children when he tells them to obey. He's just recognizing their place within this particular relationship. It's the same with the masters and slaves. Masters are in authority. Slaves are under authority. All Paul is doing here is saying, look, slaves here in this church, you need to understand that when it comes to this relationship, you need to willingly obey those in authority over you in everything. Second, look at a distinction that Paul makes. Because here you're going to begin to see a pattern of something that's really very much against the grain of how the master-slave relationship was normally understood in the culture. Notice how he describes the masters there in verse 22. He says, slaves obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Now sometimes people ask me, Stacey, what, what's the benefit of knowing Greek? Because okay, the New Testament was written in Greek, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, and they'll say, what's, what's the benefit of knowing the original languages? What, does that mean like when I read my English Bible, it's not as good? Or, or why would you even tr- uh, take the time or trouble to do that? Well, I normally use an illustration that someone used with me long ago that I think is an excellent illustration. It's like the difference between watching a movie in color and black and white. If you watch the same movie both ways, you understand the story, right? You know all the people, you know everything that happens, you, you know the plot, you know how it ends. You've missed nothing of the story, nothing of the message, nothing of what's gone on. But if I watch a movie in color, perhaps I notice that the tie the man was wearing was dark blue instead of purple. Now, in the black and white version, all I can see was dark gray. I am able to pick up little nuances, little things that give that much more detail to the story. It doesn't change the story itself. It just adds a little more color to it. In a similar sense, that's really the difference in reading these things in English or Greek. When you read it either way, it's the same teaching, the same instruction, the same concepts. But in Greek, you are able to see a little bit more of the color. And this is a good example right here. The Greek word for master, when he says your earthly master, is the word kurios, not curious. Curios. It means master or lord. It's the same word that he's been using throughout this passage when he says, children, obey your parents and everything for this pleases the lord. The curios, it's a play on words. Slaves, obey your earthly lords in everything. Why? Because you are really serving a heavenly lord. A heavenly curios. A heavenly Master, You don't just serve your master, he says. You serve the master. And you see Paul do this several times throughout these verses. In verse 22, he specifically draws that distinction. In verse 23, he tells them to do the work of the Lord, work for the Lord, not just for men. In verse 24, he does this twice. At the beginning of the verse, he reminds them that they will get an inheritance from who? From the Lord, not from their Lord, but from the Lord. And then just in case there was any question, he comes out and says, you are serving the Lord Christ, not the Lord Joe or the Lord Bill or the Lord Steve or whoever it is that your earthly Lord happens to be. That's not who you're ultimately serving. 
You are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. And that distinction should affect their understanding of their slavery and their service. They are not just the chattel property of a man. Paul is lifting them above what many people would have considered them as. They are servants of God himself. They are his slaves, first and foremost. He is their master, first and foremost. And in drawing this distinction, like I said, he's just elevated them. They're not just riffraff. They're not just throwaway objects that you can work to death and leave behind. These people are servants of Christ, just like everyone else is. This is no menial task, Paul says. And serving your earthly master well, you're actually serving Jesus. And so he draws the slave's attention off of himself, and even off of his master and his circumstances, and he raises his, uh, raises his view up to see himself the way that Jesus sees him. It goes exactly with what Paul said there at the beginning of chapter 3. Don't, don't keep your eyes, your hearts, your minds on things below. You need to draw your attention to things above where Christ is. He's doing that, practically speaking, here in this passage. Third, notice the manner in which the slave is to obey. Paul says that they are to obey their earthly masters in everything, not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. You, you see two parts here. First, he gives them a negative explanation. They should not obey by way of eye service. Okay, what, what is eye service? Well, if you obey by way of eye service, then all you're doing is you're giving superficial or hypocritical obedience. You're making the appearance of your service look good, but there's no substance to it. There's, there's no reality behind it. Okay, this, this would be like sweeping the floor and sweeping the dirt under the rug instead of off the floor and into the trash can where it's supposed to be. From the appearance perspective, it looks good. But in reality, you didn't clean the floor, you just moved the dirt. This, ladies, you'll get this one. This would be like throwing all your dirty dishes in the oven when you know someone's coming over because you, you don't want them to see your dirty kitchen. You haven't cleaned your kitchen, have you? All you did was you did some eye service. You made it so when they walk in, it looks like everything's together and well. When in fact, it's hypocritical. It's, it's a lie. It's not really the truth. Your kitchen isn't clean. Why would someone do this? Well, Paul attaches an attitude to this form of work. It's because this person is a people pleaser. They want to make someone happy. They want to impress, but not on the merit of hard work. They want to impress the master by presenting him with a lie. Oh, look at this. I've done all this great work, and it's not true. Not true at all. The modern-day equivalent of this, by the way, men, this will be more for you, is, is working hard on the ship or in your office hunched over typing when the boss is around, and as soon as he walks out, it's turning around joking for the rest of the time while he's not there to see it. He or she's not there to see it. You're not really giving them a hard day's work. You're just serving as a people pleaser. In contrast to that, Paul says, they should obey with sincerity of heart. Their, their service should be genuine to the best of their ability. They should be serving and obeying their master to the full letter and spirit of the command. And, and what's the attitude with this manner of service? Well, they should do it out of fear of their master, right? No, not exactly. Not fear of their earthly master, he says, but fearing the master. Fearing the Lord. He turns their attention to Christ himself here. The reason you serve, he says, is not out of fear of man, 
It's not to avoid trouble or to get that promotion or raise or whatever it is. You are serving because you fear God himself. By putting it in these terms, Paul confirms for all of the Colossians, slave and free, that there is nothing inherently superior about an earthly master. Yes, they may be in authority in that social economic relationship of slavery, first century slavery. They may be the ones who are in authority giving the commands. But it has nothing to do with anything particularly special about them. Okay? They're not there because the essence of the master is so much greater. No, in essence, the two are the same. The real driving force behind the manner of service that the slaves are to provide has nothing to do with the master. It has everything to do with Christ. That is the manner in which they are to serve. And then fourth and finally here, for the slaves, notice their motivation. Paul reminds them again, whatever you do, work heartily. Ask for the Lord and not for men. With these words, he's just reiterating his point in verse 22. Just in case it wasn't clear to them, he says it twice. But why? What's the motivation in doing this? Well, he gives them two motivations. First, there's the promise of reward. He says here in verse 24, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. Now, think about this comment from the slave's perspective. What hope of inheritance does a slave have? None. Unless the slave somehow could buy his freedom, which is possible in this particular culture, unless the slave can buy his freedom or unless the master, just in a moment of generosity, sets him free, lets him go, the slave will most likely be part of an inheritance given to the master's children, friends, family, etc. The slave has no hope of an inheritance he's just going to be passed on like a dresser or a piece of jewelry but here Paul gives the slave the promise of an inheritance from God he calls it their reward the reward they will get not for serving man but for serving Christ by serving man while he doesn't clarify here the full nature of this inheritance we can at least know part of it for certain look back in Colossians chapter 1 because Paul has used this word inheritance one other time this is the biggest and most important part of the inheritance that the slave will get in Colossians 1 verse 11 Paul says may you be strengthened with all power and this is being said to all of the the recipient all of the people in Colossae slave and free together may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might For all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to God the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. What is that? Here it is. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. At the very least, the slave has a promise of eternal life. Just like the master does. There's no difference in the two. It comes only through knowing and serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Doug Moo says this. Slaves who come to Christ may not have an inheritance in this world to look forward to, but they can look forward to a far more important inheritance. One that can never perish, spoil, or fade, 1 Peter 1.4, and one that they will share on precisely equal terms with all other Christians, including their master. And so the first motivation they have for sincere service, heartfelt service, is because a reward is coming from Jesus Christ himself. The second motivation, though, isn't quite so happy. 
It isn't quite as nice as the first one. After reminding them again that they are serving the Lord Christ at the end of verse 24, he gives them a motivation of of punishment, of, of discipline here. He says, For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Now, in the context, who do you think he's talking about this discipline coming from? Is it coming from the earthly masters or from their heavenly master? Well, he's only been discussing how the heavenly master relates to them here. So this is not a a warning about, hey, you know what, Onesimus, if you mess up again, Philemon, he might discipline you. Onesimus understands that. That's not an issue that he needs to be reminded of. Paul is trying to draw his attention off of his earthly circumstances and give him a Christ-centered view of, of his life. And so he's saying, look, if you fail in the service, you're failing Jesus. If you do wrong in this service, you're doing wrong against Christ. And so he reminds them, you will have to make right. You will have to be paid back for the wrong that you've done. And he's quick to point out there's no partiality. If that comment doesn't make sense to me, why would he tell the slaves, hey, look, be careful. If you do wrong, you're going to have to be paid back for the wrong you've done. There's no partiality. Why would he say that to them? Well, I'll give you an illustration from America, okay? One that's probably very um, apropos considering the time of year that it is. I'm a fan of what is normally called a flat tax, a flat rate tax. That's a tax where everybody in America pays the same set percentage, okay? Let's just say it's 5%. If I make $1,000 a year, how much do I have to pay in taxes? $50, 5%. If I make a million dollars this year, how much do I have to pay in taxes? $50,000, that's 5%. I like the idea because it's fair. And I say that with the full recognition that I benefit from the current unfairness of the system. Okay, So I'm not trying to to say something that I don't really mean. I'm I'm genuine when I say it. I think we should have a fair tax system in America. Well, the reason I like that is because it is impartial. No one's treated different. We all have a stake. We all have a responsibility. We're all partners in the process. It's an impartial system. Our current system, it's not impartial, is it? It's partial. The poor are given breaks simply because they are poor. Well, here in verse 25, Paul tells the slaves that even though God obviously cares for them, even though, as you read Philemon, you can see the mindset that he is imposing on on the Christian masters, it doesn't mean that just because they're slaves they can do whatever they want now. Well, God loves the, 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 the little guy. God loves the people who are, who are sent, who are wronged. God loves the, the poor, the weak. He does love all those people. But just because you're those things doesn't give you a right to get away with whatever you want in God's eyes. Rich or poor, young or old, rich, slave or free, it doesn't matter. Right is right, wrong is wrong, and everyone must pay for their sins. Everyone will be held accountable for what they've done regardless of their status. Now, Just for your information, he may feel the need to point this out because of that situation with Onesimus. In the letter to Philemon, Paul makes it clear that not only does he want Philemon to not punish Onesimus, okay, that's obvious, he wants him to go even further and stop viewing Onesimus just as a slave, but as a beloved brother in the Lord. And so Paul says these words to him. He says, so now, if you consider me your partner... Receive him, Onesimus, as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all, and the word wronged there is the same word that you read right here in Colossians 3.25. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. 
I, Paul, write this with my own hand, I will repay it. And then, I love Philemon because it's the best example of a, of a godly guilt trip. That's what I call it. Because he says this to him, I will repay it who say nothing of your owing me, even your own self besides. Okay, it's like, remember, you're going to heaven because I preached Christ in your area. That's how you know Jesus and how you're going to get to, to be with him forever. Yes, my brother, he says, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. He is twisting Philemon's arm so hard without coming down, just beating him on the head. He wants to make sure that Philemon does the right thing according to the gospel here with Onesimus. Paul puts his money where his mouth is and he says, if he's wronged you, I'll repay. But listen up, slaves. That doesn't mean you can get away with wrongs because the wrongdoer will be paid back. God shows no partiality in this. We're all slaves of his. He is all of our master. And so Paul has covered all of his bases. These are the instructions to the slaves. Now quickly, not only does Paul give instructions to the slaves, but he also addresses the masters as well. In chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you have a master in heaven. He addresses the way that they have to treat their slaves now, very briefly in this passage, in more detail in Philemon. He says, you have to treat them justly and fairly. The word justly here is the word righteously. You can't treat them harshly. You can't treat them unrighteously. You can't sin against them. You have to treat them with justice, with righteousness. You must treat them as an image bearer of God. You must treat your slave with the respect and dignity that faith in Christ demands. And he's also, not only treat them justly, they have to treat them fairly, meaning not in a way that's going to take advantage of them. This is not the way that most masters would have viewed their slaves. This is treating them as people, <laughs> real people, who stand before God as image bearers. And he tells them why they need to treat them this way. It's because they, the masters, know something. There's a truth in their minds that should affect the way they view these slaves that they own, is that the master himself has a master in heaven. The curios has a curios, a real curios. And so he reminds him of the fact that, look, guys, I don't care if socially speaking, you're a free person, you're still a slave of Jesus. You are still under his lordship. And so the distinction that he made for the slaves throughout verses 22 to 25, guess what he does now? He turns it on to the masters and says, you're just like them. You are just like them. You have a master in heaven who is watching how you treat those under you. Now, what is the application of these verses for us? All right, as I said last week, none of us have ever been slaves. None of us have ever owned slaves. So at first glance or first reading, you think, I, these verses must be worthless. How, how would they apply? Well, they do apply. They apply very clearly. Remember the cultural setting of the type of slavery you see here in Colossians 3. I said this at the beginning. Is it racially based slavery? No. What kind of slavery is it? It's social or economically based slavery. And because of that cultural distinction, we can make application of these verses into our own day. All of these relationships here would be, or excuse me, this relationship here would mirror in many respects all of the social or economic relationships we find ourselves in, in in our day and age. For example, the employer-employee relationship. What kind of relationship do you have with your boss? It's not necessarily a friend, though it could be. It's a social economic arrangement, is it not? 
the, the relationship you have with the military, okay? You may not like the guy or the girl who's over you, but what kind of relationship do you have with them? It's a social slash economic relationship. You get paid, you do a job, et cetera, et cetera. Pretty much any type of relationship that you can think of in the social economic world would fit in terms of application here, and you can help think through it by breaking these down into one of two categories. First, you see people who are under authority. If you're an employee, guess what you are? You are a person under authority. There is someone over you. If you're in the Navy and you're not the President of the United States, you are a person who is under authority. And so these verses here, verses 22 to 25, they apply to you and how you understand that role and your role in that relationship. So at work, in the office, on the ship, whatever, you're not the top dog. You have a responsibility before God to obey those who are your master, to obey those who are over you. Now, I probably don't need to say this, which means I always do need to say it. It seems to be the case whenever I choose not to say something that seems overly obvious, I get a question about it. Um, if you're ever commanded to do something contrary to scriptures, you, you, know, you know that that's okay to disobey, right? You, you got that part, is that clear? But outside of that, you have been hired for a purpose. You are in the role you're in for a specific reason. You, you have no authority in and of yourself. The only authority you have is the authority that is given to you by the person above you. You have a job to fulfill. We, we too often, I think, in the workplace tend to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. Oh, well, you know, I, I know how to get things done better around here than anyone else. I, I'm, I'm not going to pay attention to this guy. I know he's my boss, but I'm going to do this thing instead. You weren't hired for that purpose. It's good to have ideas. I'm not saying anything about that. But remember your place in those relationships. How should you work? Should you do it with eye service as people pleasers? No. Remember who you are serving. Even at work, when you're doing whatever it is you do, you are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. You are doing God's work. Ultimately, in everything you do, you are under his authority and are therefore serving him. So, instead of being the slacker at work who only does things when the boss is around, you, as a Christian, as a believer, should be the hardest working person on your team. And if you're not, the only, I mean, you're hurting yourself, and yes, you may need to fear your boss and the repercussions that will come from that, but you need to remember that God is watching how you work. He's the one who sees you sitting there playing solitaire when you're supposed to be typing up a report. He's the one who sees you standing around talking to everybody else when you're supposed to be fixing something, moving something, doing something. This is not a, just a task that you go just to get your paycheck and go home. This is ministry. That's how Paul is describing this here. This is the ministry that God has given to you. You should be the hardest working person there. And what's your motivation? Is it a paycheck? A raise? A promotion? A recognition? A reward? What, what are you going for? All of those things are fine. They can be great. But again, we need to turn our eyes higher. Our true motivation should be to please the Lord who has placed us in that position. It should be to make him happy in every single area of life. If I'm understanding this correctly, Paul is suggesting here that God is the one who ultimately repays hard work. Not your boss. Not the bonus check you get at the end of the year or whatever it is, how your, your job works. You should be doing this for Jesus Christ. And on the flip side, if we, sl if we slack off, 
Believe me, your boss is the least of your worries. Because you are going to have to give an account to Jesus Christ about why you slacked off. Why you didn't fulfill the purpose, the mission that he placed you there for. That verse applies to you, to me, as much as any, in that, in that area of life, excuse me, as much as any other area of life that you think of. Second, you may be a person who is in authority over others. And it seems to me that in our world today, probably the vast majority of people in this room, you fit in both categories, probably. You have people who are over you to whom you answer. You have people that are under you that you are in charge of. So for you, all of these verses apply. But if you are the person in authority, then chapter 4, verse 1 applies to you. As someone who is in authority, you have a responsibility before God to treat those under you justly and fairly. You don't take advantage of them. You don't treat them unrighteously, sinfully, any of those things. You treat them as you would want your master in heaven to treat you. The golden rule, it applies at work too. It applies with how you understand your care for the people that God has entrusted to you. It's hard to think of of work that way. Hard to think of the guys on the the construction team or the the guys who are fixing the engine or the the guys in the office, the ladies in the office, whatever. It's hard to think of those people as people that God has entrusted to your care. But leadership is something that God gives. He's placed you in that for a reason, and you are responsible to him. Applying these verses in this manner brings us to a conclusion, I think, about the nature of work itself. And And I'll pose it to you this way. Who has the more spiritual job? Me as a pastor, or you as a mechanic, a a, a person in an office, someone who's driving around making deliveries, who's got the more spiritual job? Well, clearly, Stacey, you've got the more spiritual job. You answer to to Jesus himself. Well, if I'm reading these verses rightly, you do too. Your job is no less spiritual than mine. Your profession is no less spiritual than mine in God's eyes. Maybe in the eyes of our world, a pastor or a missionary, oh, they're, they're all spiritual people. They're just incredible. And just everybody else, they're just doing secular work. <laughs> oh, heaven forbid you just do secular work. Well, if Paul can say to slaves who had no rights in this society that their service is ultimately for Jesus, then certainly you and I, whatever occupations we are employed in, fall into this category as well. All of us answer to Christ. All of us serve him regardless of what our occupation is. Listen to what Justin Taylor says. He says, quote, In my view, we are due for another reformation with regard to our view of work. Although it's much more subtle, many of us can still perpetuate a sub-biblical view of work. I remember once, he says, hearing a student leader suggest that the norm was for Christians to consider themselves called to vocational ministry and that being called, or excuse me, and that a calling to a so-called secular vocation was the exception. In other words, the default for Christians should be to go into vocational ministry unless they feel compelled to do something else. But I don't find that idea taught anywhere in scripture, he says. The result is that we sometimes have people in vocational ministry, not because it's where they've been called by their church or equipped by God, but simply because they never prepared to do anything else. We need to recover the reformational understanding of vocation, that all of life in every sphere and in every calling should be lived to the glory of God and in obedience to his word. 
Abraham Kuyper wrote this, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry mine. If that is true, and it is, isn't it worth our time and effort to think through how to glorify God in the area of work to which he has called you? It, it is very much worth it to begin to lift our understandings off of our present circumstances and place them on Christ, just like Paul has done with the slaves, to see that when you go in at 9 o'clock and stay there till 5, you're worshiping. You're ministering where you should have been. That, that's what he's saying to you. While we may not be slaves or masters, all of us in this room are either in authority or under authority or both in the various social relationships we have. And what Paul is telling us here is that in normal Christianity, Christ wants to be Lord even in those areas. And so while this cultural setting is different in Colossae, yes, the truth is the same for all of us. God wants us to serve Christ in everything we do and how wives respond to their husbands and how husbands love their wives and how children obey their parents and how parents parent their children and how slaves obey their masters and how masters treat those who are entrusted to their care. If we do this faithfully in all six of these arenas, then guess what? We will be doing what Paul said he wanted us to do, to be living our lives worthy of Jesus Christ. Dear Lord, we, we have this great temptation in our minds to, to divide our life into little slices of pie. To see our spiritual life as being one slice and our work life as another and our family life and our, our marriage and our friends and all these different pieces as being separate and only, only barely connected right at, the, right at the edges. When in reality, Lord, what you have just outlined for us here, not just in these verses we've looked at today, but throughout all of these verses, 318 to 4.1, is a Christ-centered view of every single relationship that we're in. When we are with our spouses, you are Lord. When we're with our children, you are Lord. When we are in the various social, economic relationships, work, military, clubs, etc., etc., Lord, you're still Lord. You are the master of all, and in all these things, we are to be serving you. We are to see all of these pieces as ways to minister for you. You have given us instructions on each and every one of them, and, and they're not complicated. They're not difficult. You just want to see us be different, to live lives that are worthy of Jesus Christ. This is normal Christianity not the Christianized stuff that people throw out a lot of times in relation to marriage and parenting and work, et cetera, et cetera. This is the real thing. And so I pray, Lord, I pray that you will help us to live our lives in each and every one of these relationships in a manner pleasing to you. And today we, we've specifically looked at this relationship here between the master and slave and understanding the relationship of those in authority and under authority. I pray, Lord, for everyone in this room who is under authority, that tomorrow when they go back to work, throughout this week, and forevermore now, that they will understand that that job, that place, that thing they do, it's not just a thing in and of itself. It's an aspect of ministry to you. 
Help them to lift their eyes, Lord, off of themselves, off of their situation, and to place their hearts and minds squarely on Jesus Christ so they can see their work for what you have made it, what you see it as. For those, Lord, who are in authority in here, I pray, Father, that you will help them to treat those under them as they want to be treated by you. Help them to be be righteous and fair in all of their decisions and judgments. Help them, Lord, to remember that they too are under authority, not from a boss above them, but under your authority. So that, Lord, in the workplace, and in the sphere of life where we spend the vast majority of our time, it seems like, we will be salt and light amongst people who have no reason to work hard. Why, why would the world work hard? There's nothing in it except the paycheck. If they can get that without the work, good for them. Yet you have raised our view higher than that to show us that work is better than what we have viewed it as. It's a way of serving you. I pray, Lord, that you will help us to reform our understanding of this area of life and to be good slaves of you in everything we do. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the ability to study it. I pray, Lord, that you will take this now and help us to be more like Christ. 